Welcome to another episode of Listen, Learn, and Love, hosted by Richard Osler. My guests on today's podcast are a married couple that's here in our home, Steve and Jamie Smith. Welcome to the podcast. Thank you. Thank you. We're going to be talking about Steve's addiction. Steve um, talks about being an addict. He'll be an addict for life. Um, he will talk about his story um, starting drugs in high school playing college football and getting hooked on pain pills and this journey along with his wife to deal with his addiction. Um, the first part of the podcast will be kind of a historical recap of that. So you get a feeling for the road that they've been walking. But most of the podcast is going to be Steve and Jamie um, talking about the lessons learned and the, and the things that they would share with others. Uh, this is a podcast for everybody. If you um, aren't addicted to anything, um, you will hear things from Steve and Jamie that will help you in your relationships with others, your ability to help others in your own marriage. These skills and insights that they will share will help all of us. Um, as more background, Steve is a um, thir- 39, his late 30s. He's a graduate from the same high school I went to just 20 years later, Highland High School in Salt Lake City. Jamie grew up in Layton. Um, They met at SUU where Steve was playing football. He's a safety, and um, they were married pretty young, age 23 roughly, and they have um, five kids, age 14 to 1. Steve is a business guy, and Jamie is a registered nurse working in hospice. I think I just said your kids' age range, didn't I? You did. And um, sometimes I get a lead on a podcast, and we have mutual friends, um, Julie Nelson and Steve Nelson. Um, Steve's in the Piano Guys, and Steve is our local Elders Corn president. Um, and they were those. It was um, Julie that texted me and said he, she just loves you guys and your dear friends to the Nelson family. And she's a podcast listener and thought the things that you could share would be helpful for our listeners. So I'm really grateful when somebody shares a potential lead. So we said a prayer before we started and. We just pray that the things that this couple has learned, the things that this couple has to share will come out in this podcast, and I'll kind of step out of the way and make sure they tell their story. Um, But ideas will come into your mind from the things they say or the impressions that come into your mind that will help you in your life and help you if you're trying to help others. Um, Steve and Jamie, is that okay for an intro? Anything that needs to be corrected? Sounds great. What position did you play at? I still want to talk about Highland High. Yeah. I mean, were you a safety at Highland High? Or were you a different position? Yeah, I played corner and running back. Played corner and running back. Yep. And Highland High has had good football teams and terrible football teams. Just in one minute, were you guys, were these good years or not so good years? We were pretty good. Yep. Good. Um, and we were not very, well, I can't remember. It was so long ago. We did win state in basketball. And I was a proud member of the golf team. So that's awesome. our connection. But just talk about your story, Steve. I'll turn it over to you. Yeah. So um, I grew up in Salt Lake City, Utah, in a large Mormon family. Had a great mom and dad and really loving and supporting brothers and a sister. And from the time I was young, I, I just always, I was shy and felt a little insecure and different. Um, I felt like... Everyone else had a a roadmap to life and they knew what they were doing. They knew how to act and I didn't. And that um, especially started to manifest itself in junior high where I felt like the cool kids knew how to act. The um, 
everyone but my but me knew how to act and how to behave, especially when they were around girls. Um, and I just I had this insecurity, but I tried to cover it up with a lot of vibrato and with my sports and different things like that. But I knew inside that I just always felt kind of different. And so fast forward to to my sophomore year in high school, um, I was hanging out with some older friends and um, actually the older brothers of one of my friend. And I tried alcohol for the first time. And I remember the thought coming to my mind um, after feeling all of these insecurities melt away, um, that everybody had lied to me about alcohol, that it wasn't bad. As a matter of fact, it was great. It was the answer to all of my insecurities, all of the feelings that I didn't like about how I felt, about how I looked. And that led to a lot of drinking and drug use throughout high school of and getting into a lot of trouble, making bad decisions. And that was kind of the beginning of um, what I like to call like the problem solution. My problem at that point, the, that, that was my shyness and insecurities. And the solution I found was drinking. Um, but I, so I went down to Southern Utah for a year, played football down there for a year and cleaned up and went on a mission to Frankfurt, Germany, served there for two years, um, had a great time, came home and shortly after my mission met my wife, Jamie, and fell in love immediately with her. And um, we got married a year after we met in the Salt Lake Temple. And everything was great at that point. Life was good, football, college, the marriage, everything was fun. And I injured my back playing football. And it was kind of towards the end of the season. And in the off season, they told me that my career was done, um, that I could no longer play because my back was too injured to play football. Um, so there's my problem. Um, I didn't accept that. I went to another doctor who looked at it and said, Hey, we can give you some, um, uh, epidurals injections in your back as long as well as some pain medication and you'll be able to play just fine. So I, I thought, man, that sounds a lot better than not playing football. And that's where really from that point, um, at 23, um, until I was 37, um, I was addicted to drugs and it was a long road of abusing drugs, um, of going to doctors and filling my prescriptions too early. Um, I, and when I'd run out, I would, uh, go and steal drugs from my mother or from anywhere that I could find them, anyone's house. And I started to really go down this path where the most important thing to me in my life, um, it, it wasn't my wife or kids. It was me getting high. And as long as I got high, then I could be a husband. Then I could be a father. Then I could be an employee. Um, but if I wasn't high, I couldn't be any of those things. And, you know, it led me to do a lot of really terrible things. I'd steal money from my wife. I'd steal money from my kids. Um, I, you know, for me, one of the worst things I felt like I did, I remember one time I stole a hundred dollars from my daughter who was like nine at the time and made up some story and lied about it. Um, 
And to this day, you know, that's something I look back on and just my sweet little daughter had worked really hard for that money and saved that money and earned it. And I remember really clearly in my mind at the time feeling bad about it, but realizing, hey, if I didn't steal that money, then I couldn't go and get my drugs. So I went through a lot of years of of lying, of stealing money from my wife and kids, stealing pills, and um, yeah, a lot of heartache, um, a lot of pain. And I remember I, a lot of times I'd go and I'd meet with my bishop, and he'd tell me, you know, you just need to to pray, um, read the Book of Mormon, and and have faith that you can get through this and get over it. And I remember very clearly thinking to myself that, well, I, I believe in God, I believe in Jesus Christ and in their power, and I've seen firsthand miracles happen with other people. But I also know that in my heart, that's what I wanted more than anything, and I had prayed sincerely, I had tried reading the scriptures, I had tried doing all of these things, but that miracle wasn't happening in my life. So it was easy for me to see where the problem in this equation was. I knew it wasn't with God or Jesus Christ. It was with me. The problem was with me. And I clearly remember convincing myself, and this was actually a relief to come to this realization of, uh, you know, I'd get asked a lot by my wife or um, other people, like, what is wrong with you? And every time they'd say that, I'd think to myself, like, I have no idea. Like, I, I don't know. I hate myself more than anything else. You know, the problem was I'd look in the mirror and I was with the person who I hated the most all the time, which was me. And the realization I came to was I'm just bad. I'm evil. That's what's wrong with me. And the scary and sad part about that was, is that was a relief at that point, because at least I had an answer. Um, I was completely wrong at the time, but at least I had some sort of answer to this question that would ring through my head all the time of what is wrong with you? And um, there was a lot of ups and downs. And, you know, I had been running companies and different jobs and was being successful financially. And so everything on the outside looked good, um, but everything on the inside of me uh, was just falling apart. I felt empty. I felt alone. I could be sitting in my house with my wife and kids, people that I love more than anything and feel completely alone. I could be in a room full of family and friends and feel completely alone. Um, it's a, a feelings disease that I have. And so um, my wife can fill in more of the, all the, the heartache and pain that went on there. But um, there came a point where doctors would no longer write me prescriptions. And so I started to buy drugs off the street. And that's when things really went to a new level. I found that it was easy, a lot easier to go and buy um, drugs from a dealer than going through the hassle of going to a doctor and telling them some sort of lie and convincing them that I'd lost my prescription or something of that nature. And so, but it was a lot more expensive. And during this time, I was running our family into, I was making a lot of money, but I was spending even more on drugs, spending over $100 a day on drugs. And um, where it kind of came to a head, you know, my wife had, um, she was very aware of how severe the problem was this back in uh, 2017, that this situation happened where I realized I had, I mean, something has to change. 
um, my wife sat down with me and she put in front of me some separation papers and said, I don't want to do this, but I feel like I have to protect our family from you. And when she said that, it was really interesting because I didn't get defensive. I didn't, um, the feeling that I had was this was the right decision. Like she was right. Protect the family from me because I can't, I can't even protect me myself from me. And I remember this was late one night and I had made this decision when she told me this, that I would never again use drugs, never, ever again. And the very next morning, the first thing I did was wake up, get in my car and drive to my drug dealer's house and pick up the drugs. And um, that was about a year before I went into um, rehab. And the reason that I went into rehab, we had this big plan of how it would go down. I had some equity in a company and we we're going to sell. And when that company would sell, then we financially could be, would be at a place where I could afford to go to an inpatient rehab. Well, I kind of, um, you know, destroyed that plan and I had used the company credit card for some personal expenses. And actually that personal expense that I used was I went and bought a $200 gift card from Lowe's to go and pay my drug dealer with. And it came to the point my employer said, hey, what's this $200 at Lowe's? And I had some story made up for it. And he said, all right, just turn in a receipt. And I remember I had this, I was working really hard to come up, you know, I was like, okay, I could go and try and figure out a way to make a fake receipt and all of this. And I just had this feeling like I was so sick and tired of lying. I just, I just thought I'm going to go and tell the truth. And for once, face the music and, and whatever the outcome is, I'm going to tell the truth. So I went and told my boss, um, this was in March of 2018. I went and told my boss that um, I had lied to him and that it was uh, personal use on the company credit card. And he fired me on the spot. Wow. And rightfully so. And at the time, I, I thought that was the end of my life. I was certain that when I went home and told my wife what had happened, that she was going to say, that's it, pack your bags and get out of here. Um, it, that was the one thing that I felt like, at least I'm doing okay for the family. At least I can provide a paycheck. And when that was taken away, I thought that was the end of it. And I was going to be out on the streets. I couldn't bring myself to tell her that night. Um, I went and parked somewhere in my car and just cried like I have never cried in my life until about five o'clock when I should be heading home and went home from work and acted like nothing was wrong that night. And then the next morning, um, when I should have been leaving for work, my wife was taking the kids to school. And I said to her, I said, Hey, I need to talk to you when you get back home. And she said, okay. And, um, when she came back home, I had told her what happened. And rather than I thought she'd explode on me and kick me out of the house. She said, you know what this means, right? And I said, I don't know what it means. She said, you need to go get some help. You need to go get, um, you need to go to inpatient treatment. And to me at that point, it felt like a death sentence. I did not want to do that. I did not want to be a guy that went to treatment. That doesn't happen to people like me. I'm different. I could beat this. And I, at that point, I really just thought that was my only option to stay 
married was to do what she said. You know, they talk a lot about getting to a point of surrender. Like I, I didn't surrender gracefully. I was down in the foxhole and the only option, you know, the enemy was standing over me with the rifles pointed my way. And I finally then said, okay, I, I surrender. I'll do what you want me to do. So that was, uh, I checked into treatment March 27th of 2018. So that's kind of a, a lot, but that's a little bit of my, my story, our story. How long have you been clean? I have been clean now. So since March 28th, 2018. So that's about 26 and a half months. That's great. Yeah. I, I couldn't make it one day clean. Um, that's a great, brave, honest story. Before we went live, I said, Steve, do I call you an addict? Will you answer that question for our listeners? Yes, absolutely. You know, I, I almost right when I first started stop talking was uh, introduced myself. My name is Steve and I'm an addict. And that's a, that's a title that I proudly bear and, and I openly bear and talk to about people today. Um, I didn't always feel that way, you know, in the past when people would say, oh, you'll be grateful for this one day. I would think in my head, like, I wouldn't wish this on my worst enemy. But today, this is um, one of the greatest blessings in my life and my family's life is being an addict in recovery. Will you always keep that label with you? Or will it be a time that you'll stop using that label? Nope. My, I mean, I... I view addiction as a disease um, for which there is no cure, but can be um, put in a, a daily remission by through a spiritual maintenance of a 12-step program that I follow. On behalf of all our listeners, just thanks for being so honest and candid and real with your story. People Absolutely. are drawn to those kind of stories. Um. That's kind of the first stage of this podcast. Before we went live, we wanted to make sure we didn't spend the whole podcast on that segment, just so, because I think the things that are the most helpful are the lessons learned in the process that are the most applicable to all of us. So, uh, Jamie, do you want to, maybe you could talk about, you could either talk about life, your experience during this time leading up to 2017, or you could just talk about um sort of general lessons learned. I'll just turn it over to you because before we went live listeners, Jamie has got some great um, insights that are so helpful to all of us. You know, it was interesting. So listening to him say that um, he'll always say that he's an addict. Um, it's interesting because there was a time where, um, you know, you hear people who stand up and say, um, I'm so-and-so and I'm an alcoholic. And I just always thought, why would you say that? Why would you continue to say that you are an alcoholic or you are an addict? Because I'm such a believer in the power of words. And so I just always use that, viewed that as such a negative thing. Because honestly, I mean, up until two years ago, that was the most awful thing you could ever uh, own up to, was to be an addict. Um we, I mean, like Steve said, we would never wish that upon our worst enemies. And so uh, it's just been interesting to see the shift in um, just kind of dissolving the shame that's revolved around the word addict, the word alcoholic, or this disease and the family disease. I feel like that's been the greatest gift in all of this. And I think that's when Steve says that this has been our greatest blessing 
is because for so many years, we felt like it was our greatest curse. It was this curse upon us. And I felt like I had been betrayed by my father in heaven who had led me and told me to uh, marry this wonderful person with this wonderful family. And um, how could he lead me down such a path? You know, I mean, I felt I deserved um, happiness and I wanted my eternal family and both of us wanted uh, wanted this eternal family and and it wasn't working out. And this addiction was just bringing us farther apart and causing so much chaos in our home. And so for so many years, I just felt like I would never want to have this forever. So um, I mean, we talked a little bit about before how I my our, our hope was that we would be able to pray this away, uh, fast, pray, get the help we needed to, therapy, whatever we needed to do to have this just go away and be done. My my hope was that my children would never know what their dad was um, into for a lot of years. And um, I mean, I never even wrote about it in my journal. That's how that's how shameful it was to me and to him. Um, we didn't talk about it to anybody. That's just how we dealt with it was um, just shove it down and um, not talk about the the. Pro, what was really going on in our family to anybody, no talking about it. And in fact, so much so that, um, I personally took it upon myself to make sure that our family and our kids saw our family as who I wanted us to be. And so this perfectionism just kind of ran rampant in my heart and in our family. And we portrayed ourselves as this um, really great family, which we were, but never uh, leaking any amount of the heartache and the suffering that we were really going through. And so I feel like the my heart has been completely changed. Um, I will never, ever be the same because of the way I suffered in silence for so many years. So um, looking out in a group of people, my heart is just extended to everybody out there because I know that everybody, most anybody is going through something at some time. And most often we aren't sharing that because it's hard to be vulnerable. And it's really, it's a shameful thing to talk about uh, sin, you know, and this, and, and what's going on because we view it as the sin-based model when really I've learned that it's actually just this shame-based family system that we're dealing with. Um, Talk about that. Just repeat that phrase again. I want to stay on that and just teach our listeners about that phrase. Okay, so a, a shame-based family system is um, the idea that all of us come into a, a family, a marriage, a relationship with um, these roles we, we've all been born into. So our family of origin, we've, we've taken on a role in our own family of origin. Um, no matter where that is for me, I was the the peacemaker, the the one that kind of took it upon myself to keep things together and and be the happy, positive one, and not let my my feelings or emotions um, run wild. Just shoving those down and suppressing them, and not trusting my feelings, not thinking about my feelings, not sharing my feelings. Um, and I kind of prided myself on that for all those years. And so um, anyways, entering into 
I mean, for our own example, entering into our marriage with um, already this um, this emotional um, state. So entering into this, and then we um, place ourselves into a role in our own family. This, uh, I mean, how would you describe You're this unique family system at that point? Yeah. I mean, so f- for me, um, an example of this shame based system was. You know, there, there's these songs like, if I'm helping, I'm happy. Well, um, what if I'm helping and I'm still unhappy? Um, and then, you know, we can't talk about that. We can't talk about not feeling okay. And if I'm not feeling okay in my, with myself, then I must be sinning. I must be doing something wrong because righteousness equals happiness. And so when we're taught that so consistently over and over again, and this starts um, when we're young children, we hear these things, you know, it, righteousness equals happiness. Well, I, what if I'm not happy? And we're doing everything right. We, we are trying to be righteous. And we're... So then, then that shame pours on. Then something is wrong with me. And that, that's where I think this shame of, um, you know, I, I couldn't ever... Um, no one could hate me more than I hated myself because of this shame that was around what I was doing to my family, my wife, and my kids. And this, this that decision I came to about me being evil and bad, that was a direct result of this shame-based family system that that was the only logical decision or outcome that I could come to because there's so much shame about it. Rather than, hey, maybe maybe I'm sick. And maybe I'm, I'm suffering from an addiction, which is simply an emotion. Uh, it's a disease of the emotion. And I, I couldn't talk to anybody about it. Jamie couldn't talk to anyone about it because we had to be the perfect Smiths. We couldn't even write about it. We, we didn't even want to write about it because heaven forbid Someone our posterity down the road might see that we were really struggling. And so we wanted to keep up this outward appearance because we felt like if anyone saw anything but perfection from us, then we were bad. This, then that's where the shame would come in, uh, which is amazing now as we are open. And, you know, we talk, we gave uh, talks in sacrament meeting, telling our story, standing up and telling the secret. Your home ward. In our yeah. home ward. Where which is almost hard could be harder than the visiting ward, right? Yeah. Right, yeah. In bunch in front of a bunch of strangers, it's okay. But and this is in people in front of people um, where just before I got into recovery, I would ser- I seriously felt like if anyone found out our secret that I'm an addict, this is the end of the world. That we're standing up in sacrament meeting and I'm talking just as openly about my addiction and the problems um, in over the pulpit as we are right here. And what is amazing about that is the only thing I received in return was love, compassion, and understanding. But it had to start with me being willing to be vulnerable and open and share, and, and share that the fact that, you know what, we're humans and just like everybody else, we're doing the very best we can. And that, that to me is, a really important principle that I, I try and always keep in mind and look around people like, really, they're trying the very best they could. Even when I was stealing money from my daughter's wallet and going out and buying drugs from a drug dealer in a park in Ogden, at that point in time, 
That was the very best I could do. That's what I did to survive. And thank God today, the best I can do is a, a lot better than that. Um, and back, one more thing about the shame-based family system. I was of the belief that I had to get myself right to go to God. Today, I believe I have to go to God to get myself right. And that's where I think the biggest change came where I wasn't worthy of God's blessings. I wasn't worthy of God helping me out. That was the shame-based family system beliefs speaking to me. And today I know that my heavenly father loves me and he's there for me. And all I have to do is turn to him. I have to go to him to get myself right. And it's pretty amazing to have a relationship with um, my heavenly father, my higher power that I believe in today to where he loves me for all of my imperfections, through all of my imperfections. Um, I look at, I try and imagine how much I love my own kids and think, man, how much more does a perfect father who's in heaven, um, how much more capable is he of loving me, his son, or my wife, his daughter, than I am? I, and, you know, it, it's just, it's really neat to be able to have, to build a relationship and to start a new relationship with a God, a heavenly father that I have believed in my whole life. But I feel like I really started to get to know when I was 38 years old. And I believed that my being perfect was what made God approve of me and love me. And that's what my, that's what my belief system was based on that I needed to check all these boxes not show weakness, not show anger towards him, not show this heartache. Um, I mean, I grew close to him through this experience, so close to him that my my relationship with him grew so much. But this shame that we kept secret and kept hidden was making us both sicker and sicker by the year. And why? Because we kept up this perfection of who our family was portraying to be and who we wanted to be. I mean, it was sincere and who we wanted to be and who we really, uh, I mean, we were this still this great family, but we were not ever showing what, who we really were and what we were really going through, which just, I think the the positive feedback we would receive when we were so awesome and doing great things just fed our ego more and made us more sick because it fed, it fed our shame as well. So we felt more and more shame. I, th I know that Steve has said before that he felt more shameful because if people, what do you say? If people really knew who he was, they would never. Oh, yeah. They would never. Someone would give me a compliment or say, oh, you're doing great or doing something, you know. And I would think to myself, if you really knew who I was, there's no way you would say that. And I, I look back on those times and um, I'm glad that I, I went through that and can remember that because I was completely wrong, which is interesting because at the time I was feeling that way, I was certain that I was right. Um, and, you know, it's just all we were looking for as a family, all I was looking for individually was we just wanted to be okay. We just wanted to feel okay. We wanted to feel comfortable with who we were and, and not feel like we had to hide any part of our lives we just wanted to be okay. And 
for a while there, that, that felt like an impossible thing to do, to accomplish, to, to get to that point of just being okay and comfortable with who we are and being perfectly comfortable with being imperfect and making a lot of mistakes and being open as a family, talking with our kids about it. Um, for a lot of years, we did not talk to our, most of, most of this 10 years of addiction, we did not talk to our kids about it. Because like we said, we really did think that it was going to be in everybody's best interest to just keep it quiet and have it go away and have never have anybody know what we had been through. But now we see the best thing we could do is to show our weakness and to with the scripture that our greatest, our weaknesses will become our strengths. And we have 100% seen that it's been, it's a miracle. It has been miraculous to watch the turnaround. And I was convinced that I could shame Steve better. I thought the Talk more I show that. him how terrible he is or what he, or not, not even how terrible he is, because I always did believe I knew he had such a good heart and I knew how badly he wanted to get better. I didn't ever think, well, maybe there were sometimes I did think that he was a terrible person, but I always believed in him. I knew how great he was. And that's why I stayed with him through this. People would say, how, why would you stay around through all that? What was my motivation? My motivation was I knew him as a child of God. I truly knew his heart. I could see his heart and I knew I mean, he was this great dad. And I just had so much faith that there was a reason for this suffering. And I felt like if I could show him, I mean, every time he would do something again, it would come in these waves, it would come and go. And we think, oh, we've got this. We're fine. Okay. Everything's going to be all right. This is finally going to go away. It would come back harder and worse and more terrible. And it would be more heartbreaking for me every time it would come back after the promises and the, the dedication and getting back on the boat and over and over and over. It's like just being slammed constantly of this not going away and feeling like we have done everything. We have prayed our hearts out. Why isn't this going away? And so I would try a different tactic so many times I would try a different tactic. Okay, this time I'm just going to do nothing but love and act like he's the greatest person in the whole world, which actually I've seen, I've learned since that that's actually another way of shaming is by saying, look how great you are. Look how good you can be all this potential because they're not there. They yeah, know they're not there. Potential just means unfulfilled. Yes. So he, so that actually is just another way of shaming. And they were all with the very best of intentions. I obviously had no idea I was shaming him even more. And I had no idea how damaging the shame based uh, method was. So I thought if I could just lay it out on the table, I mean, one time I printed pages, 25 pages of, I had written down all the transactions he had made that were for pills over the last six months. Honestly and truly, he did not believe it. He <laughs> couldn't believe that that was even real. So I thought if I could show him how dumb he's being, how he's just destroying our finances, if I could show him how much in debt we are, surely one of these things would make him just snap out of it. This is not something you just snap out of. This does not disappear. This does not go away overnight. You cannot pray this disease away. This is a disease. You cannot pray cancer away. We would never shame our spouse for having cancer. We would never just say, we'll take your medicine and you'll be fine. We would never say, we'll just pray it away. If you had enough faith, this cancer would go away. This disease would go away. We would never consider doing that. And cancer and addiction is very much of a disease as cancer is. And, um, but we feel the need to, I felt the need to shame him better, which is so heartbreaking now. And 
I have since seen the the flawed thinking in that and seen how I, uh, most of all, actually, how I shame myself. And that has been the greatest blessing in re- getting into recovery myself is how much I shamed myself because I was convinced and I would have never admitted that I that I felt such shame because I honestly and truly believed I was pretty much perfect. I mean, I was doing everything above and beyond everything, everything with the kids. I was keeping our family together. I was the one who was keeping our finances intact. I was, you know, keeping the kids happy and unaware of what was really going on. So I thought, um, even though they were feeling it all, I was the one who was doing everything. So I did not believe that I had this shame in my heart and this unworthiness. But then I realized that I, I was unhappy with myself because if I, I, I see now that how I felt about myself, if, if I was good enough, he would get better. He, if he loved me enough, he would be able to change if, and so I felt like a failure. So that's another reason why I didn't talk about it. I felt like it it was terrible to feel like I was failing too. I couldn't get my husband better you know, and I, maybe I wasn't doing this right, or maybe I wasn't doing that right. And so the shame, you can just see the patterns of shame and this codependency. I, I literally became addicted to him. So, um, I was addicted to his addiction. It was obsessing my mind. This is this codependency. Uh, relational addiction is harder to treat than next to food and alcohol or food. It's, uh, harder to treat than drugs and alcohol this relational addiction and, um, it's relational heroin. It's, um, this addiction to him that I, I mean, that codependency kept me in that marriage. It kept me wanting to get him better. And if he's doing fine, then I'm fine. And if he's okay, then we're all okay. And so, I mean, we went through, through waves of this. And, uh, so getting into my own recovery, um, I talk about, I feel like this is the the biggest moment where, where I felt I was uh, way, you know, on this higher plane than him. I felt like I was doing everything right. And I was not sinning in a sense. And he was this sinner and he was making wrong choices that just needed to start making right choices. And that's all that needed to change. Nothing else needed to change, but him. And this is the saddest part that I did that I felt that if he got better, our family would be fine. Everything would go away. 100% wrong. Him getting better doesn't change me. It doesn't change our kids. It doesn't change our family. We still would have been just as sick. This is a family disease and every one of us are deeply enmeshed in this. And so um, he had tried a few programs, tried to get him better. He tried to get better, and uh, but our family didn't change. Nothing changed around us. Our hearts didn't change. We still kept, you know, in that shame-based mentality and he never got better. So the moment he went into recovery and I started going to my own recovery meetings, um, very quickly, um, I realized that me and him were emotionally on the exact same level. He was no, I was no better than him. He was no worse than me. I was emotionally shut down. Uh, both of us had this, uh, relational addiction and, um, both of us had the exact same uh, disease of shame and codependency, the symptoms were just different. My symptoms looked very noble and honorable and heroic, which actually made me sicker. Um, because, you know, as I did start to open up to people and share, it was like the praise of how are you doing this? Oh my gosh, you're, you know, 
how amazing that you're staying with this. And that kind of fed, fed my sickness. And, um, so getting into recovery and realizing that we are exactly the same. We are both addicts and we are both so sick in that moment. In my first meeting, I had the spirit come upon me and testify to me that I had just as much work to do as he did. And both of us had a lot of work to do. Our whole family needed a lot of healing. Um, I needed to, uh, this awareness that I had to cleanse my inner vessel and, um, the 12 steps were, uh, the answer for that. And through these 12 steps, I have been able to since in the last two years, do more healing and more bonding and connection with my heavenly father than I would have ever imagined this cleansing of my heart revealing the shame and the truth and being able to be ourselves and really show everybody who we really are and feel so much more love than we have ever felt when we portrayed our family as this beautiful, perfect family who had nothing wrong. I just see it as, as our purpose now to uh, make sure that everybody knows how loved they are, no matter what they're going through. And everybody who is Suffering in silence doesn't need to. There's always somebody to talk to. And the, the greatest gift that I have found is going to meetings. And I've learned that there's a meeting for pretty much everything. It's amazing. A 12-step meeting is miraculous. I have never witnessed anything like it. The first time I sat in a recovery meeting in a room full of spouses who had uh, addict loved ones, parents, and spouses like all of us sitting in a room to sit in a room with people who shared my common heartache was the most empowering feeling I've ever felt in my whole life to be able to share with people like-minded people who had known my suffering. I had yet to meet somebody who could match my suffering because I had never opened up and shared. And if I had two people um, shared with them while they had empathy for me or sympathy and felt bad for me and tried to offer advice, even therapists, there is nothing that compares to sitting in a room full of people who are, have experienced the same thing. So no matter what it is, addiction, pornography, um, sex addiction, um, I mean, their codependency addiction, food addiction, I've learned it's all the same. It doesn't matter what it is. It is all the same. The symptoms are different, but the the struggle is the same. The, the root cause this shame and the codependency is the same for everybody. And we all, we came into the earth with it. We were born with that. So to sit in a meeting and Steve can talk about the power of meetings as well, to sit somewhere um, in a recovery meeting with people who feel the same way as you and be able to openly share and in a safe place is powerful. It, it's sacred. The suffering that I have felt over all these years is sacred suffering and I've learned that I have felt nothing alone. I feel nothing without my Savior. He felt every ounce of it. And I've realized that's what I've come to this earth for, is to feel those things with him. And my, my uh, intim the intimacy with my Savior has grown in beautiful ways that I never could have without the suffering, without the heartache. And without feeling all that I felt. And to sit in, in a room full of people who have felt that same thing. It's though I see the Savior sitting in there with all of us feeling everything with us as we feel each other's feelings. Those are our covenants. We have covenanted and promised that we would do that. And to sit in those rooms where you feel that is 
sacred and powerful. It's a beautiful segment, Jamie. Do you feel like, I mean, I've never heard of this spouse that's not addicted saying, I'm going to recovery. (laughs) I sort of, and so you're teaching me things that are really helpful for me. Do you feel like the work you did in recovery is solely because of Steve's addiction? Or do you feel like it was work that you needed to do anyway in just your life? Yeah, that's an interesting question. I mean, my my answer would have for sure been different a few years ago, right? But um, I have since seen that that his addiction was in my life on purpose. This was not an accident. This was not by chance. I feel like there was work that needed to be done. There was uh, there was shame in my heart. There was heartache, and there was, I mean, generational heartache and trauma that was in my heart before I ever got married. I would have never, ever in my life imagined that I needed the healing that I did. I thought I was just fine. I had honestly gotten through every trial, my my brother's death, a parent's divorce. I had gotten through these trials just fine. I my My mom just tried so hard to get me to go to therapy. And every time I'd go to therapy, I would, I mean, I would go every now and then just to appease her. And I would leave thinking they were like, I guess you don't need to come back. You're fine. I'm like, see, I'm fine. Fine is the acronym for fine feelings inside, not expressed. F I N E is I see it everywhere. Now when, when we answer, Oh, I'm just fine. There's feelings that we're suppressing. I have been shoving down my feelings in denial, uh, Here's another acronym for you. This is a good one. It's denial. Do not even know I am lying to myself about how I'm really feeling. I was in denial my whole life about how I was really feeling because I was fine. Moving through, I would have never imagined that I needed the healing that I did. So getting into my own recovery has been miraculous. And I would have never got there if Steve's addiction disappeared after a few years. If it would have just gone away, I would have never gotten into my own recovery. And I have learned that me getting into recovery is um, the only way for me to truly be happy. People have asked me before, well, what if he relapses again? How can you trust him? All these things. None of it matters because I'm in my own recovery. I am in charge of my own happiness, no matter what happens with him. I'm not in charge of him. I'm not in charge of his recovery. It has nothing to do with me. It's between me and my father in heaven. Me and my higher power is the only thing that really matters. And, um, oh, I lost my train of thought, but let me, let me just, um, speak to that point about her being in recovery. Um, I think a lot of people think what that means is she is learning how to help me, the addict, get through my addiction. That that's not the program that we are working at all. Um, she is working her own recovery on her own addictions that she talked about, her addiction to perfection and codependence. She works her recovery completely independent of me working my own recovery, which has done amazing things for me and mine. It, it is, it, we stay out of each other's recovery. Um, we, we, I don't get involved in what she's doing. I'm not following up with her. Hey, are you going to your meetings? Are you doing this? Are you talking to your sponsor? And she doesn't do the same thing thing to me. Um, we we stay in our own lane, and we focus on our individual sides of the street. And as an addict, having my wife get into recovery for herself 
which I know at first she went thinking what that meant was um, as the spouse getting into recovery means I'm going to learn how to help heal Steve. Basically fixing him. How which to is fix Steve. Ultimate codependency. That, that's not at all what we're doing here. We're working on ourselves individually. And it, it's pretty amazing getting into recovery and working on this. Like I, I'm past the point of having a, a drug, uh, this, this daily drug addiction. I have a living problem now that I get to work through and have a program of recovery that helps me with all of them, all different facets of my life, mm-hmm. not just not taking drugs or alcohol. And these principles that we practice, you know, that you know, turning our will and our lives over to, to our um, higher power, to our heavenly father, like this is, that's the kind of program that, you know, that's what I personally am focusing on in my recovery right now is how do I do that better? What does that look like? How does, what does that mean to me personally? And how do I actually put that into practice on a daily basis? It's really powerful. Um, I'm thinking of Steve Nelson and Elders Quorum, our common friend, saying when Julie's wife um, died, Julie's brother died, mm-hmm. his wife's brother died. <laughs> I'm saying that right. He said at first I, I realized that I can't be my wife's savior. I need, you know, that she needs her own savior, and I can't solve this Um she needs a husband. She needs someone to love her. But each of us have to go, I guess, and and to what you're helping me understand our own recoveries, exactly our own individual journeys, and get good support groups, get our savior, get a relationship with Heavenly Father, um, and support each other in individual journeys. I think there's a link between a married couple to support each other, but you can't be each other's saviors. That's exactly right. I heard someone actually last night in my meeting say that. Um, you know, we come into, you know, a, a place of a therapist or somewhere and, and somebody else is causing our suffering. You know, someone else is making these poor choices and, and causing so much suffering, which if you looked at it on paper at the time, I mean, the, the, the chaos and the heartache that was and the financial struggles, the, this terrible problem that was going on in our family was, you would say it was caused by his addiction. And, and my, that's where my suffering was coming from. And I've, um, I heard it say that someone else can't cause your own suffering. Causing my own suffering was is me not going to meetings, not talking to somebody about what I'm going through, not writing this down, not working it through with a therapist. Um, me not working my own recovery is what's going to cause my suffering. We can't, somebody else can't do that to me. And so I, I find that being in my own recovery was it's hard to admit that sometimes, you know, that, oh, yeah, I'm an addict, too, and I'm in recovery. That was hard for me for about one second until I realized, no, this is the reality, that I am just as sick as he is, and I have no problem saying that because we all are that sick. We are all emotionally shut down and in denial, and we need recovery. And so when I say that I go to meetings, I go to um, the church has the addiction recovery program meeting, and the first time I was told to go to a meeting, she said, I encourage you, because I had been listening to the the family uh, recovery, I forget what it's called, um, the family, the support, family support side of the ARP is very helpful. And I, that's what I listened to all these years, be, because I was kind of this victim, and I wanted to, you know, know how to get him better. But then when I was told in that first meeting, she said, I want you to go to a meeting, but don't go to the family support one, you need to go to the addiction recovery program for yourself. I was like, me, I can, I don't want to show face in that meeting. I am not 
one of them. Then I sit in this meeting and my heart just is pouring out with so much love I can't even describe. This sacred amount of love for every one of these addicts as they're sharing. And humbly, I'm sitting there feeling like I am one of you. I am every bit as sick as all of you in here. And my love and my compassion for those who are suffering in addiction was just, you know, it's undescribable. And so I do, I go to recovery meetings myself because I have so much, I mean, like Steve said, it's not just drugs and alcohol we need a recovering from. It's, it's daily things. I, so, and the neat thing about going to Al-Anon for that's for um, family support for drugs and alcohol. That's the meeting that I go to is I go to an Al-Anon meeting at least once a week. I go, I try to go to an ARP meeting. I haven't been to those for a while, but um, then I also go to a family support group through Renaissance Ranch where he went to treatment. So I go to multiple meetings a week for myself. And I know some people think, you know, why are you going to so many meetings and why do you need the meetings? You know, it's not, it has nothing to do about with Steve. We don't talk about drugs and alcohol in our meetings. We don't talk about them. Sometimes it's kind of like a testimony. Sometimes that adds to our story or experience in the moment, but we don't talk about them. These meetings have nothing to do with them, everything to do with us, everything to do with me and my own healing and my own, um, life that I need to work through. It's like therapy. So I have, um, us, my own sponsor. So I've got my own Al-Anon sponsor that I have found in a meeting And I actually call her every morning and we um, just kind of check in with where I'm at and what I'm doing. It's not always necessarily about recovery, but I am working the 12 step program on myself, on my own heart and miracles are happening. I am not exaggerating when I say that miracles are happening because I'm choosing to work the 12 steps in my life and in my heart. Um, And I see them every day and this sponsor, it's a beautiful thing. She helps me um, recognize these miracles, helps me see my own flawed thinking, my own self-pity, um, helps me keep in my own lane. So when I, second, I start to obsess again over Steve or worrying about what he's doing, the second I even start to think, you know, worry about his behaviors, she just kind of helps redirect me back to myself. And that is where the peace and the happiness lies is within myself. The savior is in my own heart. And that's the only place I can truly be happy. My happiness cannot be found outside of me where I don't have control. Happiness and peace is found in my own heart between me and my father. So just so many thoughts going through my mind and I'm sure many listeners right now. Um, I, there's just a lot of cultural headwinds you've been fighting on this that you're helping us um, push in the right direction with this story. And I mean LDS culture and some of the things that, you know, this outward perfection we need to portray in the reality. I sort of call it the front of our face. We're projecting in the back of our minds is our reality and the dissonance between that can be really hard. Mm-hmm. But you brought another one to my mind is, is I think I've always looked at marriage and the covenant of marriage and kneeling across the temple altar that I'm supposed to solve every problem for my wife or she is supposed to solve every problem for me. And that's, and if I, and that's just what we do. Um, and we do have the savior as part of our marriage, but I love the things you're teaching that even your sponsor in the morning and that role that she plays for you, I'm thinking 
for you, Steve, it's, you know, that's probably, you're probably glad she has that person in your life. No, I love her sponsor. um, (laughs) And I've never met her or talked to her. And so it's not like either of you are threatened by having these outside influences in your life, these people that are individually helping you because it's making your marriage better, but you're not sort of codependent on each other to make each other better. And that's very enlightening to me because I think I want to solve everything that would ever go on in our marriage or expect my wife to solve everything. And I recognize that that's probably not realistic. Um, we need each other, but we need other people to help us be, over, you know, I just like what you're teaching. I don't quite have all the words to describe it, but it's very helpful. And it's very non-shaming to mm-hmm. say that we need a sponsor every morning or we need other people in our life to help us. Oftentimes we think, you know, if something's bothering with me, with Steve, that I would need to go directly to him and I need to just tell him all of it, everything that's bothering me, this open communication. And then I realize he doesn't need my worry. He doesn't need my fear. He doesn't need my shame. He doesn't need my criticism. He needs my recovery. So usually I will, you know, it's just kind of taught me to filter what I would, what, what's bothering me. And really look inside myself first and do some digging and dumping deep in my heart. And sometimes with a sponsor and sometimes with a pen and paper and sometimes just writing it out. And the more I write, the Savior is able to step inside me and come out in my pen. And my true, my subconscious is able to speak and things come out that I never knew were in there. And usually what happens is in the end, I find that it was really something with me that was bothering me and myself actually always it's always something inside me that's bothering me with myself that I thought was him. And so right there, I've dissolved something that didn't even need to come up and I've done more healing and I've allowed the savior to help me heal rather than turning this into a fight or a conflict. It's still something that can be talked about, but you can imagine so much, yeah. so much more peaceful after the fact. So this doesn't seem like it stopped really open, vulnerable communication. It seems like your marriage is closer than it's ever been. You know, uh, to that point, um, we were down in St. George last week and we um, met up with a guy that I went through rehab with. And he was asking me, we were just talking one-on-one, and he said, how, how um, is your relationship with your wife? And I said to him, I said, it's better than it's ever been. And he was like, really? Like, and I was, I was kind of taken back. I'm like, well, at least it is from my perspective. Um, so then I went and I at, later I just talked to Jamie. I said, hey, I just told our friend that um, our relationship is better than it's ever been. Do you feel like that's uh, accurate? And she said, oh, yeah. By far, even better than the newlywed honeymoon phase. Because we're able to emotionally connect on a deeper level. It's almost like taking the fluff and the problems and the day-to-day irritations out. So what I've learned is um, that other people around me, Steve, is only a salt thrower. He can't bother me and upset me if I didn't already have the wound. The salt wouldn't hurt my wound if the wound wasn't already there. So is there something that bothers me? about him or that he's doing or something he said, it's because there was already a wound there first. So this kind of has just taught me, given me the opportunity to really look, look into that first before I cause a problem. And, um, I've just learned that feeling is healing. And that's the only way to really heal is to feel it. 
talk about, you mentioned you have kids age one through 14. You've told your older kids that you're an addict. Um, I yeah. don't know if you've used that exact language. Um, you're, you know, you're, oh, yeah. you're not using right now. So it'd be easy to not talk to your kids about this. Why and why do you tell your kids about this? Yeah. I, I mean, so actually all of our kids are very aware and we were open and we talk with them and we're honest with them about it. Um, I think probably how they would hear Like I, I most of the time say like, I'm a drug addict. Um, and my kids are, are very used to it. You know, my daughter, for instance, um, she had a soccer game that, uh, I, I have a meeting that I go to on the same night and she's like, hey, do you need to go to it? Dad, you know, you've been sober for quite a while and you need to go to it. And I said, you know, something I learned in recovery is anything that I put before my recovery, I risk losing. And I'm not willing to risk losing supporting you and your soccer and games. So I'm going to go to that meeting tonight to make sure that I'm able to go to those games down the road. And so with, with all of our kids, this is something that, so they still go, they go to the Alateen meetings, even our little seven-year-old boy. They're goes, learning how to talk about their feelings, something I literally couldn't do in meetings. We sat in our first, I mean, in t my whole life, we sat in one of our first, uh, we had a processing group and the therapist sat in between us and he had us express how we were feeling. He was saying, you know, how did that make you feel? I, I mean, neither of us knew anything about feelings. I'm like, um, bad, made me feel bad. And he's like, you know, well, how did it really make, I, we don't even know the language of feelings. Our kids are learning things that we haven't learned our whole lives That's about cool. feeling things. And it's okay for them to feel that. It's okay for them to uh, feel their feelings, talk about their feelings, share their feelings, express their feelings, and more importantly, trust their feelings and that that's okay. And we talk about that openly as a family. And they also, we give them their, uh, respect them enough to talk about that privately with each other or with in their meetings. They know that their meetings is a safe place. They can share their experience, strength, and hope without us prying and asking them about it. They have a safe place. Also, all of us have somebody we can talk to that's safe. And sharing our feelings is the most important thing we can do. Um, I've learned that anything that we suppress as parents, our children will express. So anything we suppress, they will express. So for us to keep these things inside and to keep quiet about what we're really feeling or what's really going on and not talking about the elephant in the room, not talking about the struggles we've been through, then our kids are feeling every ounce of that. We cannot for one second pretend that our kids are not feeling what is going on. Our kids are so sensitive and so close to the spirit that they feel everything. So it is more damaging. It is more damaging to suppress our feelings and suppress our emotions than it is to shoot up heroin and to, to drugs and alcohol. I had somebody ask me in a meeting, what's more damaging? You not talking about what you're feeling and shoving it down and just carrying on like everything's fine or your husband doing drugs and alcohol. I'm like, um, drugs, much more damaging. Look what it's done. And she was like, wrong. No, it's more damaging to shove down my feelings and to pretend that nothing's wrong and nothing's happening than it is. At least he's being emotionally honest and doing something about it. Wow. At least he's aware and he's, he's acting it out. And our kids will act it out if we don't talk about it. That's a powerful segment. I know I was seeing a therapist as what during a, 
and I was the YSA bishop, and I our kids are aware of that now, but at the time, I'm not sure they were, and they could sense that. They knew mm -hmm. I was not emotionally healthy, and I was, of course, the dad that was firing all cylinders and would never tell my kids um, I was seeing a therapist every Thursday morning or the yeah. YSAs, and I think if I'd been more open with both groups of people, that vulnerability would have made me a better YSA bishop and a better father um, as I walked some of the same road you did. Um, so I really agree with you, and it's taken me a long time to understand some of the things. Um, talk about, and one of the blessings of this, as you know, and I think our listeners know, is if I'm one of your kids, so if I'm one of your kids, I just know I could talk to you about anything. I knew... And I've always wanted to create that relationship with our kids, but you have been able to do that in a way that is so authentic and so real. And I think some of your greatest paydays is these kids, they just know they can, you're safe and they can talk to you about everything. And then if you know what's going on in your kid's life, you can help them. And that's what we pray as parents is we know what's going on in our kid's life and what they're feeling, what they're experiencing, if even if it's bad behavior. And so I just think that's one of the blessings of where you are, are these, and then you can talk to them. You have the skills to go where they need to go as parents and talk to them, and, and you will help them in ways that will just, you'll go to sleep at night with just, and that may be already happening already. And when you talk to your congregation about who you are, I love, you know, that people just, I just know that people, because of this podcast and talking to your congregation, other forms, that everybody just says, okay, I can talk to you too about what's going on in my life. I may not be an addict, but I may have something in a whole different area, but it requires the same set of skills and the same set of trust and vulnerability, and I can talk to you. You know, I've, I've got to tell you, this uh, a moment, probably one of my proudest dad moments happened. Um, so... <laughs> My two daughters, uh, 14 and 13, were downstairs on the phone talking to one of their friends. And they, their friend was asking my daughters for some advice about a boy. And my daughters came running upstairs and they said, hey, so-and-so is going to call you, Dad. <laughs> and I was like, what? She said, yeah, she had these questions about boy about boys. And we said, hey, you need to talk to our dad. He gives great advice. <laughs> he was like so Sure enough, touched. my phone rang. And my I was just like, oh, my goodness. My daughter's just like, this is something you think they just don't want to even talk. Like, don't talk to Dad about boys. But it was just a moment where I was just like, I was so glad that they felt safe so safe about talking to me about boys that they thought, hey, you need to talk to my dad about this. So it just... Not very many teenage girls would... It was pretty awesome. Um, just a cool experience of, of seeing how comfortable uh, they were. Especially at that age. I think the the thing is, is we've just eliminated the shame. The shame has been eliminated in our home. And I think Steve's actually said before, you couldn't do any worse than what I did or something, you know, like just the idea that... It's okay to make mistakes and it's okay to have weaknesses and we can talk about that. And we have seen in our own lives, our weaknesses can become our strengths. But if we don't talk about it and we're shamed about it and we feel like there's something wrong with us, that we can't turn that into our weakness until we recognize, I mean, into our strength, until we recognize that it's our, that it's a weakness and we talk about it and we learn how to overcome. And I think that's what Steve's so good about is, um, in our home and with our kids especially, is eliminating that shame. I, 
you know, that's a word I didn't have much um, knowledge about. I'd, I've heard that word my whole life, um, but it's certainly during my YSA assignment, I learned a lot more about it. Brene Brown, somebody who's taught me a lot of social scientists, mm-hmm. this line that's shame says I am bad versus I did something bad is one of the most important phrases I've learned in the last five years. And that's what you're teaching us today, Steve, in your own personal journey. Because, And you're teaching us about Steve is that the core of Steve is great. And the core of Steve never wanted to do this. The core of Steve never said at age 13, how can I rebel against God? How can I turn my back on my wife? Or not at age 13, he wasn't married to you then, but... So this, and, and the longer I served as the YSA bishop, my wife would say, what do you think you're doing in those bishops' interviews? And towards the end, I says, I think I'm de-shaming people. I think that's the mm-hmm. biggest gift I can give people. And I think I look at the life of the Savior, and I think that's what he did. I look at the prodigal coming back. Mm-hmm. The worst-case scenario that Christ could, ex- could illustrate um, of selling your birthright and in the far the way he sold it in the faraway land, and then coming back and having that father in daylight in the field. He set it up daylight in the field, and that father represents a father or a savior, heavenly father. And as he sees his son across the, he runs towards Ran him. Ran unto him. He'd, I would make my son grovel. I would make, I wouldn't talk to my son for a decade <laughs> if he had sold my birthright. And, and to me, and the son's just stunned. And he's in the, in the scripture looks as father, you know, I've sinned against heaven and thee. It's sort of like, why are you treating me this way? And the son itself concluded he was going to come back as a servant. That was shame. Mm-hmm. It was positive in the sense he was going to come back, but it says, I'll never be the same. This will always be different because I'm an addict or because I messed up here, this. And forever it answers the question, we come back, do we come back as sons or daughters or servant? And in that moment, that very initial moment, he put a coat on him and a ring on his finger to answer the question. When we come back, we come back as sons and daughters. And it's the most de-shaming insight into how the atonement and the Savior feels about us and our Heavenly Father. And you're teaching that. You've felt that in your own, both of your lives. So what you're teaching is doctrinally consistent with this loving Heavenly Father that you've talked about. And when you said you talk about the unconditional love Heavenly Father has for all of us. I absolutely 100% believe it, that nothing we can do can take him out, us outside the circle of our Heavenly Father's love. Um, culturally, I think, you know, we, we've created that sort of feeling um, that we can't be happy, we can't turn to him. I love this line you said, I'll get myself right and then I'll turn to God. I met so many YSAs that sort of said, I'll go figure this out. I'll go solve this mm-hmm. on my own. And then I'll start coming back to church or feeling like I can pray again or feeling like God will finally love me. And I just think that's one of my feelings is Satan's greatest tool is not you taking drugs or you taking alcohol. Because I just think you were trying to deal with stuff in a logical way that was going on. That is not, that's a sin and a mistake, and we all agree on that. But his great, Satan's resides in our shame and the self-loathing and the lack of hope and the whirlpool. Mm-hmm. And to me, that's Satan's greatest tool. And you're, and what you're teaching about shame and de-shame and create hope and is so consistent to me with the gospel of Jesus Christ and the atonement. You're teaching the practical application of the atonement is what you're teaching in this podcast. That's exactly. Um, question for Steve, 
on your very darkest days, and maybe those day, days involve thoughts of suicide or even suicide attempts, what would you say to yourself now? And that's you talking to our listeners that are really, really dark spots that just think, I am beyond solving this. That there, there is hope. That things do get better. That your Heavenly Father loves you. Your Savior and brother Jesus Christ is there for you. And that there is hope. Um, I definitely have been at that point where um, I don't ever, you know, I, I think like I would love to just walk outside and get struck by lightning. Right. And I f I'd feel like the world would be a much better place without me around. I have been there. I have felt that. And I was wrong. Um, for me, it's just that there's hope. There is healing. Things get better. And I, I've said this uh, before, but if two and a half years ago when I went into treatment, if I wrote down, this is exactly what I want for my life two and a half years from now, I would have sold myself short by a mile. And it has nothing to do with the financial side of things. It has everything to do with my life and how I feel inside. I love that. And the older I get, the more I connect with real people. There's a lot of people in really dark spots right now. And I've learned the Fowler model of why people are suicide really resonates with me. And one of the three circles of that model is a feeling I'm a burden. Mm -hmm. And I'm actually messing up my eternal family and they'd be better off without me. Oh, yeah. And yep. I just recognize that that's the logical thoughts that would come to your mind it, 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 with the reality of your situation. Um, so I'm glad you're alive. Yeah, me too. Him too. We're kind and of. And there was the, a time where go ahead. we wouldn't think otherwise. <laughs> yeah. Yep. Um, this is a f wonderful podcast. There's so many things you've said that are just so helpful. Listeners will listen to this a couple times and rewind. Um, I love where you said this is a disease of of an emotional disease. I think you. Yep. And I like that because that um, deshames it. Um, and then you talk when you talk about this as a disease, then you um, we are we get treatment for diseases. I love the visual of the separation papers and surrendering to treatment. Yeah, and was part of your journey and how it's an important moment that was. Um, I love the word surrender you use, Steve, and I think that's when we really make a lot of progress in our life when we completely surrender. And for me, and I think for you and others, it's when we know we need help culturally and maybe that's more men than women and maybe it's more in our church where I don't know if that's true but we are taught to sort of solve things on our own and not ask for help um, and I think it's a and I think the people that ask for help my respect for goes up so I would think in your congregation when you talk about this people's love for you and respect only goes up. Isn't that ironic? <laughs> it absolutely is. It's the is. exact Amazing. opposite of what Satan would have you believe. Yeah. And, and to that point, that has happened only every single time. So anyway, let's just, I want to give each of you a chance for closing thoughts, Jamie and then Steve. I'll let Steve go first. Let actually. Steve and then Jamie. Yeah. Good. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, um, 
first of all, I want to thank you for coming on and um, allowing us this opportunity. This is extremely healing for us as a family. This is part of our recovery, part of us practicing what we preach, um, being open and honest with the hopes that somebody will hear something that one of us said and that it will help them um, either get into recovery, reach out, pick up the phone and call a friend or talk to someone who you know um, can be a good resource to you. So for, for me, my, the main thing is um, that there's hope. I, I thought life was over. When I went to rehab, I really, and I don't say this lightly, it felt like a death sentence to me. That was the end of my life. I was unemployed. I thought my wife was going to leave me with my kids, and I was heading down to this place in Bluffdale just to, to die. Um, and I was completely wrong. And it's, it's amazing how different my life is today um, to just a few years ago. And that, that when I, I talked earlier about just wanting to feel okay, I think a lot of people understand that. Like, I just, I didn't want, I didn't need to feel amazing. I just wanted to be okay, be okay with who I am, wake up in the morning and be okay with life. And that's where I'm at today. And, and that to me is all really I ever wanted was just to be okay with who I am and whatever life's going to throw at me, know that I, I'll be able to handle it. Thank you. Um, you know, the thought that keeps coming to my mind is um, the feeling of all is lost. And I truly believe that that is what the adversary would have us believe. All is lost. There's no recovering from this. There's no way we can repair this. There's no way we could ever undo all this damage, the financial distress. There's no way we could ever come back from this, the shame that we bring upon ourselves and our family and our kids to know all this. And like, like Steve said, a death sentence to go to rehab. And as I started telling people and, and, and just watching the way that people were able to love us in our suffering and in our heartache and in our mistakes and in the situation we were in was a miracle. It's the true love of Christ. It's charity. The compassion that people had on us was greater than I could have ever imagined. It made me wish that I would have opened up to people 10 years before, that I would have expressed. I mean, there is a level of, of vulnerable vulnerability that we that we should share and can share, but in those in the right time, in the right place to share with people who love us and care about us is empowering and does great things. So that feeling of all is lost, I have felt so many times and for so many years, this is not just, you know, a few days or a few hard days, years and years of crying myself to sleep thinking, oh my gosh, looking at these babies or being pregnant with a baby again and thinking, what are we bringing you into? What kind of environment are we bringing you into? Who are we kidding? You know, thinking that we can have more kids and, but just trusting the savior and trusting my a loving heavenly father, who was very aware of us, very aware of what we were going through and never for one second forsook us, never turned his back on us, no matter how, how dark things got. And no matter how deep the addiction got, um, no matter how hopeless I got, I mean, I felt true, sincere, genuine hope, hopelessness, genuine hopelessness of 
we will never, I will never get my dreams. I will never have my eternal family. Like this is, this is over. And then I see now the miracles that can happen of enduring with faith and support of others and holding to um, my relationship with my heavenly father. I see now all is not lost. Everything is for a reason. Nothing is coincidence. Nothing happens on accident. Everything is for a purpose. And if we could only see our Heavenly Father's big picture and His purpose for us, it is far more beautiful than we could ever imagine. And sometimes it's harder to see, too hard to see past the night, too hard to see even into the next day. And that's why I love the saying one day at a time. Sometimes we get this anxiety of thinking, oh my gosh, but what if he relapses? Or what about down the road? Or we're still not making enough money and we're already this today. Like Steve said, today I'm okay. Today I have my heavenly father. Today I have my children. We can pay our bills right now. We That's can cool. miracles. And just to see the grace, grace has made all of this grace. possible. Grace is heavenly father doing for us what we cannot do for ourselves. And we see that every day in our lives. And it is beautiful. I would have never imagine that we could be today where we are with addiction as a part of our life. I only thought it was possible if addiction was out of our life, but I see now that because of addiction, that's where we are. And that's where our children are. That's where our family is because we have embraced it. We've embraced the disease and embraced the suffering that everybody's going through. And the heartache is part of us not something in the past that we've overcome. It's just what it's who we are. If people wanted to contact either of you, how would they get a hold of you? Well, I have a, actually an Instagram where I share Good. this. It's called From the Heart of Recovery. Perfect. And people can go to that Instagram account and DM mm -hmm. you, obviously. Exactly. So account. I actually um, have had people say, can I send them to your page? Or, you Good. know, I have we have a lot of people reach out to us so they can go to that. Or, I mean... I don't know how else Steve? you reach us. <laughs> I don't know. Through you. I'm the right. social media. I'm the social media one. I've got our regular page. So if anybody wants families, to reach Steve, they could go to e either. Or our name. Jamie, yeah. Jamie Joe Smith is my regular Instagram. So if so, they wanted to go to our Instagram, yeah, my, it's just kind of our. That's great. I don't know. I guess so, they can always reach us through there. And uh, yeah, so that's the way to reach this couple is that Instagram account. They mentioned they're a couple. So you can reach either of them through that. Um, I want to read a quote that regular listeners will be familiar with. It's from Henry Norrow and a Catholic priest. And um, it's titled of this quote is called The Wounded Healer. And the more I, these are two wounded healers. Uh, a minister's service will not be perceived as authentic unless it comes from a heart wounded by the suffering about which he or she speaks. The great illusion of leadership is to think others can be led out of a desert by someone who's never been there. So you two are wounded healers. You two know a brutal desert. Um, those deserts have been separate deserts at times. They've been the same desert at times. But you have this beautiful ministry that really all of us have, if we're as honest and authentic and vulnerable as you have, is we're all wounded. Um, and we can become each other's healers as we do what you're teaching us to do and what the lessons you're learning Thank you, um, Julie Nelson, for this text I got. Steve was on the text and suggested this podcast. 
Um, thank you for maybe the eight to 12,000 listeners that will listen to this, but especially thank you for Jamie and Steve Smith for bravely coming on and sharing your story. And this is Richard Osler signing off on another episode of Listen, Learn, and Love. Thank you.